Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I'm Bridget Evans and you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 855 on your AM dial. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Hatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial, and it's International Day or People with Disability Day today. And welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And I'm really pleased to be here today broadcasting on International Day of People with Disability as a person with a disability myself. I'll read out one of my favourite quotes. I don't suffer from dyslexia. I live with it and work with it. I suffer from the ignorance of people who think they know what I can and cannot do. Erica Cook. Now today we're going to have listened to a interview by Bridget Evans on disability. I really don't like this concept of teaching people to see the person and not the disability. Then why can't people see a person with a disability and not freak out or not feel uncomfortable? You know, it's like that weird backhanded compliment that we get when people say, you know, oh, I don't think of you as disabled because you're my friend or you're really cool or because you're just like me. And can we not be all of those things? Can we not be cool and likeable and people's friends, but not also be proud of our disabilities? I kind of hope that we can. And I'm speaking to Bridget Evans about disability. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Now, we'll start off with a little bit of background information about you. Now, you received the Laurie Prize for Excellence in Philosophy. Could you tell us a bit about this? Uh, Yeah, I received the Laurie Prize while at Melbourne University. So I was researching whether trust injustices directed towards the autistic do constitute an injustice and whether... Yeah, I was researching at Melbourne University looking at trust directed towards the autistic and whether the failure to attribute trust due to an individual's non-chosen characteristics does constitute an injustice, as we're not actually obliged to trust individuals. But if stigma is involved, I was looking at whether there is an ethical imperative for us to reassess that trust attribution. Um, so th- this just applies, you, you just had this applying to people who were autistic? Yeah, I was right? looking at yeah. autism specifically. I found growing up with an autistic sister myself that people would often perceive her differently and even myself as a sibling, as soon as I started 
talking about my sister or her disability, then suddenly I seem to have less credibility rather than more, despite having experience within that realm. And I was just interested about or in researching why people seem to hold actual experience in less regard, at least in a philosophical and in a trust-based sense. So that's sort of what started me on that path there. So which people did you find were... It came up on any level. So obviously there's realm within philosophy that seems that places a higher regard on reason and rationality and therefore the removal of emotion within our analysis. But I found it wasn't even just on an academic sense that I'd be discussing my relationship with my sister with other people and suddenly I seem to like close off a conversation simply because I'd introduced the topic of disability that are no longer are we talking about sibling relationships because Bridget has a strange relationship and that's an uncomfortable relationship so suddenly the conversation has ended and in terms of then how that played out in trust relations that my family would be given decreased opportunities in terms of like relationships, in terms of even being invited out because it's like, oh, well, they probably won't be able to make it to that event or they probably won't be able to understand this situation because of that disability that's within the family. And I don't think it is necessarily a really explicit thing. I think you can just sort of sense within the background that people do see that my sister isn't necessarily a sister in the typical way that a non-disabled person would be, that we don't have that same relationship. Therefore, I don't have a sister in that conceptual sort of way. Yeah, and I think that's always led me down a path of wanting to really understand how that stigma can impact on our perceptions of disability, because I think even without necessarily meeting my sister, people have a huge sense of what she's going to be like and what I'm going to be like because I have that interaction with disability on such a personal level. With with people who are autistic, it's a fairly broad mm. spectrum, isn't it? Yeah. You know? So, uh, I mean, one person may have certain behaviours and another person may have totally different behaviours. So what sort of behaviours does your sister have? Yeah, my sister's actually quite severely autistic, so she's got limited ability to actually communicate at all. So in terms of what I was researching at university, I think a lot of what I was looking at would be difficult to apply to her specifically, but I think in terms of the relationships around her and how someone being or someone's family member being disabled does impact on trust and credibility attributions for the family. And I think in terms of obviously that wide spectrum of autism that individuals that may have milder autism that may be seen as yeah having these skills in terms of like memory and things like that, that it allows for some equal trust attribution because it's like, oh, well, that person's really skilled in this, but it's still not necessarily seeing them as a like, whole person. It's seeing that autism and then attributing it based on a stigma and a stereotype around what, oh, because you're autistic, you must have this skill. I, w- I was reading a little bit about when you received the, the Laurie Prize for Excellence in Philosophy and 
you were going to go somewhere to do your placement. Was that a connection with the prize? or No, so that was actually what I've been doing for the last two years. So I've taken a bit of a step back from philosophy and I've been working for Teach for Australia, which is a program that takes high-achieving graduates from non-teaching backgrounds and places them in disadvantaged schools to mm-hmm. teach for two years. Mm-hmm. And so it's quite a controversial program, but it's been like a very, very steep learning curve for me, going straight into what was a brand new school. So my first year of teaching was the first year the school opened. So I've been building a school and a curriculum from scratch. And yeah, from next year, I'm moving into a new location. I'm going to be teaching philosophy again, which is um, exciting to take all of that learning experience and put it in a new situation, but still build on everything that I've done so far. So is it what age group are you teaching philosophy to? This year I've been teaching history, English and a little bit of philosophy as an elective program to sevens and eights because that's all the school has so far. And next year I'll be teaching VCE philosophy. Great. So what was it that inspired your interest in disability? Yeah, for the large part, I think it really was my relationship with my sister and not just her, but because of everything that I saw around how individuals and how society treated not just my sister, but my family, but our family friends who also had children with disabilities, that there's such a limitation on these families' abilities to actually fully integrate into society because there's just so few services that enable them to actually do so that I just really wanted to look at the ethics surrounding that and the stigma surrounding that and actually find a practical application for philosophy that while I love researching the big ideas and things like that, I like to actually look at things that could make a positive change in the world. Definitely, though, that's really important. Could you tell us about the politics of inclusion in regards to education? Yeah, so there's really two big sides of the debate in terms of inclusion. One side's really looking at individual choice and the other, I guess, more focused on service to society more broadly. So in terms of individual choice, it's that idea that the family or the needs of the child can select whether they're going to go into a mainstream school or a specialist school. And so these specialist schools will obviously have staff that are far more trained in actually assisting students with disabilities in terms of, say, like the non-compulsory pathways after school that like career training, things that are in terms of if they've got, there's a lot of autistic schools opening. Now there's uh, schools that are going to assist specific disabilities or the disabled more broadly. While going into mainstream school is also a choice for that a lot of parents make and a lot of those children with disabilities will make as well. And I feel that can also carry over to having a positive impact on society or at least the potential to do so because I feel education is a space where the disabled and non-disabled actually interact on a daily basis whereas once school's over there's very few chances for most people to actually have that type of interaction again that our society becomes more and more segregated in these areas so actually having a true inclusion policy where students with disabilities and students without disabilities are within the same classroom, they're learning the same content, 
that can actually, I think, have a major role to play in overcoming stigma. But there's still huge issues there that, at least within my own classrooms, I see that these students that do have disabilities, they're not actually truly included. They're within the classroom, but their friends have disabilities. They will learn maybe sometimes the same content, other times they don't actually get the support they need to be able to participate in that same curriculum. That a lot of teachers aren't truly trained in how to best cater for these students or they don't or they feel that they don't have the time to actually cater for them. So while inclusion might have a big a potentially really big social impact in improving the lives for disabled individuals, that without actually assisting in true inclusion, it's just not happening. But then if we just go into completely specialist schools, then that chance for social integration is completely lost. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 855 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking to Bridget Evans about disability. There have been some segregated specialist schools that have closed down recently, and I think that by these schools closing, it's taken away choices from children with disabilities who may have been accommodated better in specialist schools, even if it was just on a part-time basis. Mm. Yeah, I think this definitely in some areas has become a trend or that schools that used to be specialist have been open up to be mainstream schools and they're transitioning away from pure specialist education. Um, And I think that it does definitely take away choice for the parents that for, like from my own personal perspective, I know my sister never would have been able to participate in mainstream education, that it wouldn't have been beneficial for her, it wouldn't have been beneficial for the teachers and it wouldn't have been beneficial for the students because having known her, she would have been highly disruptive within that environment. But at the same time, these schools that are looking at transitioning into part-time specialist schools, I think a lot of them are doing a really excellent job. I've visited a couple of the new autistic schools within Melbourne and um, a part-time specialist school in the western suburbs, and they have a specialist program two to three days a week, and then those students would have a sister school that they would then go to the rest of the week. And I think for those students that that suits, that that's very beneficial in that it's looking at both their specific needs but also integration within the broader community. So it has both of the benefits of specialist and mainstream education. But the idea of shutting these schools down completely is taking away choice and opportunity for those students and those families that just would not have any real benefit from a mainstream education. Yeah, what impact does caring for a child with a disability have on caregivers? I think it's a really difficult question because based on the level of disability, it can have such a huge impact that from, coming from a family that has severe disability within it, that it can be just incredibly isolating on a social sense that like both of my parents can't leave the house at the same time, that in terms of yeah, their actual opportunities, they're obviously severely limited by that. But at the same time, even within 
family like that. I personally don't feel they're all negative, that so often caring is seen as it's always going to have a negative impact on you, that it's always going to be so incredibly hard and that it's this emotional turmoil that is just never ending. And that is true in part, but at the same time, if I didn't grow up in that situation, I feel that my eyes wouldn't have been so open to so many things within the world that because of that, I've pushed myself much harder that I feel I'm much more aware of the impact that my actions can have on others and that opportunities can allow for. So whenever disability is is talked about in this completely negative sense, I think it forgets the person that's involved there and the families that are involved, that while I might not, like my sister might not be able to um, even say my name, she's still my sister and I still have such a deep connection with her, even if it might not be in the really typical way that most sisters would interact, like she's never done my hair or taken me out shopping, but I still have a very, very deep love for her. Um, And I think at least on any level of disability that whenever we hear these debates about curing disability or about like euthanizing children that have been born with disability, it can just, it does really hurt those families because you can't not listen to those and say that like if we accepted these debates, my family would be gone. Yeah, that's right. I don't think that anybody can judge anybody else's quality of life Mm. either, can they? I mean, unless you're in exactly the same position Mm. as them. You know, you can't actually, well, I suppose it it just goes for average people. Mm. I mean, you know, sometimes I I look at people and I think, oh, gee, you know, you don't do much. You go to work, you come home, (laughs) you have your dinner and, you know, you might have go out and see a movie on the Mm. weekend. And I think, oh, what a terribly boring life. But (laughs) I thought, I really don't have the right to judge Mm. somebody's life just because I do a lot more than other people. So Mm. I I think it's that thing you, you really can't judge other people's quality of life but does the failure to extend trust to individuals on the basis of their inherent non-chosen characteristics constitute an injustice? Personally I think it does when that stigma is actually involved obviously while we're not obliged to extend trust to anyone I don't have to trust you, but if I'm choosing not to trust you because you have an attribute that is stigmatised within society, I'm not just failing to trust you, I'm failing to extend any opportunity that that trust offers that I might not go into your store because of this or I might not have a conversation with you because of this attribute, that from any level that these trust-based interactions occur on, if it's lacking because of stigma, there's definitely a injustice there. It's just hard to pinpoint exactly where our behaviour needs to change. And this is where I think education really comes into it, that we need to overcome these stigmas so that trust can be attributed due to the person's abilities rather than because of stigma. 
that if we're we learn how to attribute trust based on empathy and based on a reasoning through like a recognizing that oh I might be failing to attribute trust due to this stigma therefore I need to learn more about this situation so that I can actually make a fair judgment rather than a judgment based on stigma and this obviously plays a large part in interactions with individuals with disability as well as interactions with other stigmatized groups and for so long as for so long as they're still occurring then our society is going to continue to be segregated on these terms and less and less opportunities are going to be offered to people because these opportunities are extended through trust-based relationships. Right now some theorists have questioned the right of embryos and babies with severe disabilities to live. I know we just touched on this before, but would you like to expand on this statement? Yeah, Yeah, so yeah, we did touch on it a bit there, and I think it's often a hard subject for me to talk about without just getting angry, which is exactly what they argue is a reason why we shouldn't listen to me at all, that we need to be purely rational about these things. And if we look at disability from a purely rational standpoint... It's obviously better to euthanise these embryos or um, these babies before they can develop into full human beings. So what what are the reasons for for that sort of mindset? I think a lot of them are arguing that if we look at it from a standpoint of purely logical and rational standpoint, that they don't recognise the the relationships that are involved in such decision-making, that if we approach disability from that rational standpoint, then we end up looking purely at utility and quality of life for the disabled or for the family or for society more broadly, that they don't necessarily then see the positive impact that disability can have and that it's far richer than what they make out, that just because an individual might not be able to contribute to society in the same way doesn't actually mean that their life is worth less, that every life has a richness to it and a connection that leads to leads to a positive impact on our world. That, yeah, which is yeah. definitely for the better, mm. isn't it? And I can't imagine a world without, it, without any people with disabilities, mm. basically. Yeah, that if we completely eradicate difference from our world, then I think yeah, we've definitely lost a huge potential for our world to actually grow, that if we're saying that individuals with disabilities are somehow ha- like have a less of a life than others, then we can say, well, people with these other stigmatised attributes, they also have less opportunities and less quality of life. So I can't see how it doesn't just become a slippery slope and a failure to actually understand how human relationships and human emotions actually work, that there's very few individuals in our world that don't have a connection with someone else and that to argue that we need to cure disability or eradicate disability is to fail to understand the emotions that are involved in that debate and that discussion. That debate is always heard 
from or heard by the disabled and their families. And I think these theorists like Peter Singer to say that he's in this privileged position because it doesn't affect him in any way is actually a not a positive for his debate, not the positive that he thinks it is because we're always debating and having these philosophical discussions as humans. And as humans, we always have these connections with others and we always have a very high potential of disability impacting on us, not just through our relationships, but as we age, as we go through life and actually interact with the world, there's a high likelihood that one day Peter Singer himself, as he gets older, will also become disabled. And then yeah, I th- think he has to rethink that idea that he is somehow removed from and having this rational standpoint within the debate. Yes, that's right. So do you have any future study plans within disability? Um, yeah, so I'm actually, I think it was yesterday I actually enrolled in Masters, so I'll be um, researching, basically what I've been discussing today, so looking at policies of inclusion within the education sector and the potential that inclusion has to combat stigma directed towards the disabled. So um, looking again at epistemic and trust injustices, but looking at how these philosophical perspectives can actually inform educational policy and can have a potential impact on how our school system is actually reinforcing or combating stigma towards um, individuals with disabilities. Well, thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Thank you for having me. And I've been speaking to Bridget Evans about disability. I'm Sue Dodds and you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio 855 on your AM dial. And that's all we have time for today. So happy International Disability Day to everybody. And I hope you've enjoyed the program. And do stay on the line for Are You Looking At Me? (laughs) 